Welcome to another episode of Chic Compass Connection. This podcast will give you a glimpse into the window of the popular Chic Compass magazine, where we feature art, music, design, fashion, dining, and all things chic for the culture-starved audiences of the world. To view our magazine online, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S dot com. We would also like to thank the Vegas Room in the Historic Commercial Center in Las Vegas, Nevada, for inviting us to their supper club to broadcast our show. I'm your host, Jamie Hosmer. Let's introduce today's guest. David Tupaz is an artist and fashion couture designer. He's the only established designer in Nevada, representing Las Vegas in every major fashion week in the country. He's a regular on the red carpet, dressing celebrities and movie stars during award seasons. He's the founder of the Las Vegas Fashion Design Council, a nonprofit that mentors local designers, creative youth, students, artists, and others. David also happens to be the creative director of the Chic Compass magazine. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me, Jamie. Pleasure to be here. Now, today we happen to be in your in your beautiful design studio, mm-hmm. uh, which is chock filled with. Every imaginable design here, and they're all beautiful. Tell me a little bit about this space. Well, uh, I'm at Tivoli Village, uh, which is a very sort of like a private high-end commercial center. We're not like a typical mall where it's really crowded. A lot of people that come here usually work with appointments because Tivoli Village is not just a, a commercial center. They have clinics and doctor's offices and banks and all of that. Um, I moved in here February 15th, and I did construction. And by the time construction was finished, the shutdown happened. And so, you know, unfortunately, I had to sit doing nothing for about three months. So I literally opened June 30th because I'm part of the phase two uh, of the city's plan to open. Got it. Yeah. Um, so let's let's rewind a little bit. And my first question for you is, how did you get started in this, in the fashion industry? Well, that's funny. It's quite a long story, but I'm going to give you some sort of, I'll summarize it in the sense that I graduated interior design. I never really had any formal training in fashion. It was brought by accident in a sense that I moved to New York City in the 80s, I don't think you were even born then. Oh, I was. <laughs> believe me. I was. So anyway, uh, when I got there, uh, nobody was hiring in the interior design industry uh, because it was the eve of Desert Storm. It was the first time. Wow. Yeah, I'm sure you remember that. Oh, yeah. You know, the first time America went to war after Vietnam. Yep. And so, you know, industries were on a standstill. Nobody was getting laid off, but at the same time, nobody was hiring. And so uh, living in New York City, you need a job. And so I was looking for a job here and there. I was even willing to work for McDonald's or a pizza parlor. And so finally, a friend of mine told me that, you know, tur- turn the classifieds and, you know, there is this ad and you should take a look at it. And it says assistant to the pattern maker. And so I said, yeah, you know, assistant, what's wrong, whatever, you know. So I applied. And during that time, there's no such thing as emailing your resume. Right. You know, you have to go there yourself with your resume. Yes. And so I came in at 8 o'clock in the morning. There is this tall guy, you know, and this was on 7th Avenue in New York. And then he says, you're David? I said, yes, come on in. So I go in. I give my resume. He asks me to sit. And he was reading my resume, and he was looking at me as he was reading it. And finally, he said, I don't see any fashion uh, experience <laughs> in your resume, he goes. And, you know, my common sense... Uh, kicked in and I said you know I have a copy of your ad I said and I actually highlighted it and I put it in front of him the ad from the New York Times classified okay and it says there assistant to the pattern maker and it didn't even say with experience there you go you know and and then and then so so uh, why are you here? He said. 
Well, I'm here because my experience is also in design. I said interior design and fashion design is relative. It's instead of me doing a room, I'm doing an outfit, or I'm doing a jacket, or I'm doing something. But we use the same tape measure. We use the same inches and centimeters. We also use the same collar wheel, you know? Wow. <laughs> and he laughed so hard. Wow. And then he said to me, I like you, he says. You are the ninth person who applied for this job, he said. But every time I ask them, why are you here? Or I don't see any experience in fashion. They excuse themselves and they leave. In your case, you're using this. You're using your head. And I want somebody who can make decisions. I want somebody who uses their head and not a robot in my office. So where can you start? So that's how I got in working in the fashion industry. And the thing about it is, I mean, he, you know, this guy's in his 60s when I met him. And it was like having a personal tutor because it's just me and him in, in, in the basement, the pattern room. And, you know, I mean, he would explain to me what he does. Or sometimes when he takes a break, he asks me to cut the line and just follow the shape or whatever. So he was kind of like training me at the same time. And I was learning it hands on. Wow. So working him for, with him for six years, I, I learned the difference between Italian tailoring and the way the French made their coats and the way they do it in London in Saville Row and the way the Americans kind of mixed it all up, you know. But then, you know, I was able to distinguish certain patterns and cuts and how you make a dress instead of a tailored suit for men. You know, I, it was like having my own personal tutor. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like... That gave you a better education than if you had gone to school. To uh, definitely. Because, you know, when you go to school, like in fashion school, they teach you all the technical. They teach you how to design. They teach you what to put colors. They teach you how inspiration is done. They teach you sewing, cutting, and all that stuff in order to produce a garment. But they never teach you how you become a designer. That's interesting. It's very, it's very similar to a musician. Mm -hmm. Right? It, mm -hmm. A lot of uh, musicians go to music school mm -hmm. and that you learn the theory mm -hmm. and you might learn the technique, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really teach you how to actually get gigs or it how to make show you David Foster. That's right. That's exactly right. So that's very interesting to me. Yes. Um, and how long did you work for your mentor? Oh, I worked for almost six and a half years under him. And then when he retired uh, after six and a half years, I was moved by the company to another office, which is the fabric buying office. And I thought I already knew a lot, but I didn't. Mm. The, whole, the whole section, the whole thing about fabrication was a whole different world. That it, it was an, another learning experience for me because this time learning about fabrics is actually uh, connected to how the business would, how the design would sell based on the material. And it, it was very complicated in a sense that working for them in, in, in that company, you know, we do fashion week and that's how I was, that's how I started knowing about the industry. And then, you know, the big stores like Saks Fifth Avenue, Neiman Marcus, you know, they would always, uh, 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 do their appointments to, you know, they see the runway show. And this is something that a lot of people don't know. The things that the designer shows on the runway is not exactly what you're going to see on the stores. I did not know that. Yes. So like, for example, that's why if you see a runway show, like if you see them CNN or some news report or whatever, if you notice some of the people in the front row, they have paper and pen. Yes. And they write uh -huh. as they watch. Those are merchandisers and buyers for particular department stores or boutiques or whatever it is. You know, there are international people. And so the reason why is that the designer creates this look and the model comes out. But the buyer's instinct is, mm, I don't think I can sell the jacket, but I can sell the blouse. Okay, I'll put the blouse on. I don't think I can sell the pants, but I can sell the belt. So they dissect what the designer is showing as the model is coming down the runway. So they only pick things that they know their store can sell. That's why you hardly see an outfit on a model that's actually displayed on the window. That's interesting because a lot of times in those shows you see very outlandish exactly. types of situations, right? And, and you wonder, where the hell am I going to wear yes. this? 
But the thing is, a runway show, a fashion show is still a show. So they still have to put some theatrics. Because if, if the designer is just showing T-shirt and jeans, how exciting is that? So they're framing mm-hmm. some of those, mm-hmm. the, the things that would maybe appeal to more of the masses, but they're framing that mm-hmm. with something that's more theatrical. And not only that, it catches attention because yeah. it's newsworthy. Got it. You know, the shock appeal. I think if, if I'm going to apply to music, you have this thunderous, fabulous intro that you don't necessarily have to, but you do in order to catch the attention and then the music comes. Right. It's the same thing. Wow. Or you have a tremendous dramatic ending to your song. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So it's just similar in in a sense that, you know, it's it's still art. So there's something has to be some art about it. But, you know, that's more or less that's how it is. And so, you know, learning fabrics, that's how, you know, my, that's how you start relationships with all the buyers because they have particular specifications, you know. And the thing in the fashion industry, there are certain fabrics that you can only use for dresses. There are okay. certain fabrics you can only use for men's shirt or okay. suits. All, those fabrics cannot be either or. It's wow. really created by the fabric manufacturers for a certain outfit for a certain clothing line. I would imagine uh, fabrics, you know, how have they changed through the years since you started? Well, it has. In a, in, in right now, you know, about a few years ago when, you know, everybody started being conscious about climate change and global warming and all of that, uh, you have to remember that one of the biggest pollutant, polluters of the planet is the fashion industry. I'm sure everybody knows that. And I so, don't know, actually know how many people know that, but it, it actually is true, right? It's true. We are. And so the thing there is a lot of designers, you know, and a lot of manufacturers, you know, somehow examine their conscience. And they now they started doing... Uh, uh, biodegradable materials or materials that are recycled. Like, for example, they could create fiber using plastic. That's wonderful. So all those plastic bottles that they're being thrown or whatever, it, it's, it's recycled to a certain form. of they, they have some sort of way to do it, you know, and uh, technology-wise, and they can turn it into fabrics. And you're involved in this yes. part of the industry, yes. right? Tell, yes. tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, the thing is, uh, right now, actually, what we're trying to do with this pandemic that's going on all over the world is that most of the designers, uh, particular, I, th- I, I would say, I would think that most the European designers were are starting a, a collection of fabrics that are antibacterial. Wow! Exactly. So uh, what happens is the fashion industry sort of uh, tries to adapt to change, and we adapt to what goes on in life today. And so um, it, it's not just the recycling of plastics and make them into fabric or the you know or or biodegradable so that you know if if, if ever that that particular shirt or that particular jacket goes to waste or goes to the garbage it deteriorates like biodegradable so it doesn't become wow. you know a pollutant of, right. of, of of the environment and so now with this pandemic they are developing materials that would protect you from viruses and from uh, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. It is. It is. It is. So, it's a game changer. And I think that is what creativity is all about. I think, you know, one of the greatest things that, you know, being, ma- I mean, mankind here on planet Earth is that that creative touch. I remember my grandfather ever since I was a little boy. Uh, my grandfather, my father's dad, uh, every time he would see me, he would always tell me, David, like, you have to be the best of what you can be. It was always some sort of an advice. But for me growing up, you know, ever since I was a little boy, I always hear him tell me this. So for me, it's just like cliche. It's like, you know, don't get in trouble, come home before midnight, eat your vegetables. You know, for me, it was something to that effect, right? But all through the years, since, you know, grade school, I graduated elementary all the way to high school. Every time I would see my grandfather, whether it's a Christmas party or, or a family gathering or whatever, when he sees me by by the time he goes, he would always remind me, David, you have to be the best of what you can be. And I remember 
after high school, I was about to enter freshman college. It was Christmas dinner over at his house, and the whole family was there. But I said, you know, I was raised, we're all Catholic, you know. And so uh, tradition and Christmas dinner, Christmas Eve dinner, the family stays together after dinner through midnight because everybody goes to church at midnight mass. Midnight mass. Exactly. And so, but at that point, I said, you know, I have friends from out of town. I have to see them. So I said, I'll just see you tomorrow for Christmas Day and we'll open gifts. So he brought me to the door and as I was leaving and I hugged him, same thing again. He goes, David, remember. I said, Grandpa, enough, I said. Ever since I was a little boy, you always tell me this, be the best if you can, be the best, be the best. I mean, hello, I said, is this like a habit? I mean, it's like, is there any other message that I'll hear from you in my lifetime? And he started to laugh. And he says, well, he says, you're about to enter college, and I can see that you have a direction in life. And I said, yes, I can see myself in the next 25 years. I said, you know what I want to do in life? I want to be involved in the arts. And he goes, great, because by the time you follow your dream or by the time your dreams come true or you reach your goal, I might not be there anymore. The reason why I want you to be the best of what you can be is because there's only going to be one William Shakespeare that after 500 years, we are still studying his work. There's only going to be one Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart that after 300 years, we are still playing his music. There's only going to be one Albert Einstein that has changed the course of science whose discovery mankind is benefiting from today. There's only going to be one Coco Chanel that has changed how women dress and made the little black dress a uniform for all women of style. Who are these people, he said. They're not kings. They're not queens. They're not president. They're ordinary people like you and me. But what they did is they became the best of what they can be and what they contributed mattered. Since you were a little boy, he said, I knew you were naturally creative because I would see you run around the house with a little pair of scissors and you would get magazines and newspapers and you would cut them and make them into fire trucks and houses and little people. So as a little, as a young as you were, I knew you were naturally creative. You have to feel honored that the universe gave you the gift of creativity because it is not available to everyone. You have to feel honored that the universe chose you instead of the other guy in order for the universe to give you this gift because the universe feels you deserve it. But this gift comes with a responsibility, he said. When you're a creative person, you're like a light. Where do you put a light? You don't put it under the table. You don't keep it in the closet. You don't hide it in a box. You put the light above in the center of the room so that everything around it shines. That's the responsibility of the creative person because the universe is just using you that through this gift you can show the rest of mankind that life is worth living and what you can contribute is to make life more beautiful. Wow, that is really amazing. Your grandfather sounds like an amazing individual. Oh, he is. And I, I, I share this a lot, especially to some of the designers I mentor today, because how many young kids hear this kind of wisdom? Yeah, not many. And no video games give this kind of wisdom. Well, ain't that the truth? Isn't that what, sad? What did your grandfather do? Oh, well, my grandfather, um, you know, uh, I would say we're the fourth generation. He, his, his great, great, Oh, no, he's, my grandfather's great-grandfather used to be the governor of, uh, in, in, Manila, in, the, in the Philippines. Okay. And so he was in politics. And my great-great-grandfather's son, which is my grandfather's father, started the first Filipino-owned goldsmith and jeweler compa jewelry company. And so, because at that time, we were still under Spanish rule. Okay. And most of the businesses are controlled by the Spanish. Okay. You know, the Philippines has been under Spanish rule for 400 years, since 1521. And it was the Spanish-American War in 1898 that freed us. Hmm. I'm sure you know about the Spanish-American mm -hmm. War in mm -hmm. 1898. Mm -hmm. That's when the Filipinos were, became under American control. 
because they were able to get the Spanish out of the Philippines. Okay. And so from 1898 all the way to 1946, the Philippines was actually a commonwealth. We were just like Hawaii and Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. But then in 46, they gave, the Americans gave us independence with a deal. Okay. That that deal is that they're putting the biggest military bases outside of the continental USA in the Philippines, which is Clark Air Force Base and the Subic Naval Base. They're still there today? Uh, no. They're not there today? They're not there today. And... Uh, um, But there is news that they're all coming back because of what's going on in the China Sea, where China is trying to take over uh, a lot of those parcels, and they're creating islands. Wow. And so the American presence needs to be there, because all the other Asian countries are complaining, like Thailand and Vietnam and Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei and the Philippines, of course, because you know the China is trying to claim properties on that particular side of the world. That brings up an interesting question for me from somebody outside the fashion industry, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. um, how much of a role does trade with other countries um, play into your design business? Are you thinking ahead of you know, the fact that, well, we may not have a great relationship with this country trade-wise or there are some tensions. Does that affect what you not do? Not necessarily because style is free. You know, style doesn't know what politics, doesn't know any of those things. You know, regardless whether... I remember uh, when China was not open to the Western world during the time of Chairman Mao, you know, all those people were wearing the same uniform. Right. You remember? Yeah. You know, every woman, a, ch a man, child, they were wearing the same uniform. There was no fashion then. But the thing that was interesting is regardless whether everybody looked alike, there were jewelry. Well, isn't that interesting? Exactly. And so some of them express themselves through jewelry, you know, and, 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 and not only that, there was perfume which is also part of fashion. So everybody might look the same, but they don't smell the same. <laughs> <laughs> so, so fashion does work, even in the most harsh environment, like you know, a, a, a dictatorship or a communist country. It survives in some form. It doesn't have to be clothing. It could be something else. Because fashion is not just clothing. You know, it's jewelry, it's sunglasses, it's socks, it's underwear, it's cosmetics, perfume, lipstick, yeah. shampoo. You know, it's that's fashion. Everything is fashion. So, creativity, inspiration. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things your grandfather talked to you about. Mm -hmm. Where do these things come from, in your opinion? Uh, you're talking about my grandfather or me? No, you. In your opinion, where, like when you, wise? yeah, where do these things come from? Well, um, ever since I, I'm, um, I get inspired from either a situation or or a history. You know, my last collection in no, I wouldn't say uh, before. I think 2018 in in New York, I presented a collection inspired from Imperial China. Um, uh, you know, because a lot of people in the West here in the state, we don't understand different cultures. We know who they are, where they come from, what they do, what they believe in, but we don't really dissect them. Right. You know, right. we don't try to understand why are this, this, why are they this way? What, what is it in their culture that makes them such, you know? And so uh, I did a collection inspired from the Forbidden City, which is the 2,500-year-old palace in China, because I tackled, I did my research. And as early as uh, the, the Ming Dynasty, which is like, I know, 800, almost 1,000 years old, you know, women became powerful in China. It's not as if, like here in the West, until the, the days of Susan B. Anthony in the 1800s, women were not allowed to vote. Right. But in China, women became empresses. Wow. They had power. They run the country. Hmm. As a matter of fact, you know, uh, 
the last empress of China who passed away at the turn of the century, 1900, was the Empress Chu Xi. She 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 ran the China, the China, the, the Chinese country. I mean China and governed it, you know, and until I think for I don't know 60 years in power. Wow. Well, wow, that's amazing. So I wanted to show the, the what is it about the feminine power that that you know why is it in the Chinese culture that they made it in somehow masculinity and femininity was in it equal grounds, whereas I you know here in the U.S. we're still trying to think if we deserve a woman president. You know, right. you right. know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's an idea. Yeah, it's there. Why not? But then I don't know if Americans really wholeheartedly feel that we do need a woman president. In your head, why not? Right. Right. But in your heart, I don't know. Interesting. Right. Interesting. And and. Same thing with having a black president during Barack Obama. Idea-wise, sure, why not, right? In your head, why not? But in your heart? Won't it be nice when these things are not really a big deal? Exactly. But that comes with discipline and that comes with education. Mm -hmm. And I was told that nobody's really born a racist or nobody's really born. If you see little children play with other children, they don't care if they're black, white, yellow, green whatsoever. So, but then society gives us some sort of an idea of where we should be. And we I'm not only talking about schools or education, I'm talking about media. I'm talking about what we see on television, what we see on advertising, what we see in TV shows and you know in everything around us. It's it's that is the thing that kind of like messes it up. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean how many how many block how many black dolls do you see being sold in toy stores? Well, I can't say I know that. I, no, no, I, but I'm saying, but, right? But hopefully more now than when I grew up as a kid. Mm-hmm. When I grew up as a kid, I don't think there was any. Exactly. And the way we, even in our religion, you know, Jesus Christ has always been a white guy. Correct. But he's Middle Eastern. He was not born. <laughs> he was not born in Cleveland. Exactly. You know, he was Middle Eastern. That's right. He's Jewish. That's he's right. The, the Middle East. But the way they portray him, it's like a white dude. People tend to uh, portray, portray history so the way they want to. I don't to. have to explain further, but I'm sure you get the gist. Yes. You get the picture what yes. I'm leading to. That's right. So I think it's society that molds us on who we are today. And I think if we take out all this, I don't know if we even call, have to call it prejudice or anything, but I think, I mean, even beauty. Let's talk about beauty. Let's mm. forget about racism. Mm-hmm. You know, the epitome of beauty is the ancient Greece. The sculpted, as you see, their sculptures, the muscled, the chiseled nose. You know, it, it's it's the, the idea of beauty is the Western beauty, right? It's it, it's it's uh, we see it in art, we see it in sculpture. Still, still in what well, I don't know, five thousand years ago. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that concept is that what that's what we always look for. That's what we seem to be. I don't know. I don't know if it's called brainwashed or anything, but for us, for us, that's the beauty. Nobody really went out and said, this is beauty from Africa, or this is beauty from China, or this is beauty from some other country. You know what I'm saying? But internationally, even anywhere abroad, even if you're in Asia or in Africa, it's, it's the white race that seems to be the epitome of beauty. Hmm. You know, the chiseled nose, the high cheekbones, you know, the jawline. I, I, it's in sculpture. You see it in all yeah. major sculptures in every museum all over the world. The epitome of beauty is the white race. Hmm. Well, you know, hopefully uh, as humanity invo- evolves, that will evolve so that people will see that there's beauty everywhere. Every culture. Exactly. And every- I think human, you know, I always say that human beings... I mean, humanity in general only evolves in one thing. What is that? Relationship. There's no other things we can be good at. Mm-hmm. 
that's where we are. Mm -hmm. So it's through relationship with yourself, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your parents, your relationship with religion, with science, with politics, with your dog, you know, your relationship with nature. That's how we evolve. That's all we can do. Very true. So, you know, and, and, you know, I think it will take more than this lifetime. I think it will take another thousand years. You know, now, just now we already, you know, approve that there's such a thing now that, you know, same-sex marriage. Whereas then that was like, you know, they cut off your head. I know. Right? You know, but the thing is, it, it does, it does accept changes. And, and, and the world seems to quite open its narrow-mindedness. And it's slowly opening, slowly, it's gradual. So I think eventually, probably not in this lifetime, probably in our kids' lifetime or whatever, we can see more changes, we can see more acceptance. But as for now, as what we see all around us today, there's still that. The kids, the kids today seem to be so accepting mm -hmm. of each other, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's hope for the future. Yeah, I mean, that's you the know? only thing we can do. It's like, you know, it's like, uh, I think neither any of us can change the world, but we can start with... We can start, we can somewhere. do our part, right? Yeah, exactly. So, David, tell me, if there is such a thing, who is a typical customer of David Tupaz? Well, usually it's those women who lunch. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I mean, because there are different kind. I mean, if I talk about fashion, for example, there are two kinds of fashion. There is the so-called manufactured fashion, and there is the other one, which is the designer fashion. When you talk about the designer fashion, you talk about Gucci, you talk about Chanel, you talk about Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, right? But when you talk about manufactured fashion, you talk about Banana Republic, Club Monaco, Zara, Old Navy. Why? Because there is no designer image behind those labels. There's no human being, okay. which is the face of that brand. Okay. Whereas a designer label does. Ralph Lauren is a real human being. <laughs> right. Right. You know, Coco Chanel was a real human being. So of the manufactured brands, mm -hmm. are they just hiring a they designer? Have, they have designers that work for them, but these are just designers. They're not brand designers. Right. But some companies already hire in order to uplift the image of their brand. They hire name designers to actually work for them. I'll give you an example. Mark Jacobs is one of the greatest American designers, was hired by Louis Vuitton in Paris to be their creative director. Okay. Although Mark has his own line, he has his own brand, and yet they hired him to update the 100-year-old Louis Vuitton brand. Interesting. Okay. So that happens. Uh, uh, but then you see the difference, right? Mm -hmm. So that also boils down to who are the people following this kind of setup. Who are the ones following all these expensive brands? Of course, people with money. Right, and the manufactured brands are just for the regular person who works a nine to five job, sure, and they wait until it's clearance or sale season that's when they shop, right, so I'm sort of in the middle of both, okay, right, because um I don't manufacture my clothes like Old Navy or Banana Republic that I make of hundred dozen of one style or a thousand pieces of this. I don't have that capacity. The most I could do is probably three sizes. Okay. And then there is the couture. I'm talking about ready to wear. And then there's the couture where I can only make one. Mm. Like for example, uh, doing an outfit for Celine Dion for a performance. I have to do that dress just for the performance. I cannot manufacture it five times, you know? Okay. Or there is a, a wedding and, and this, this bride wants a particular dress. That's her dream since she was a little girl and we have to create it for her. And that, I cannot manufacture that. So she's the only one who's going to have her have that design. Right. I remember, I think the most expensive wedding dress that I was able to make was um, 
uh, a wedding dress and her, the top of the wedding dress was actually embroidered with real pearls. She didn't like sequins. She didn't like crystals or rhinestones. She wanted, she wanted real pearls. Wow. And so I got freshwater pearls and in different shapes and sizes, and we did the embroidery using all that. And the dress became so heavy. And, you know, I remember her father commenting when, you know, she was all dressed up, and her <laughs> father said, David, this dress is going to be in a museum one day. And I said, true, because this is no longer a dress. This is jewelry. Wow, right. Right, kind of blurs the line yes. there, right? Yes. So those are the kinds of types of clothes that I can make if somebody's willing to pay that. That's about $67,000. Wow. That dress. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's something right there. Exactly. And so, you know, I could do that. But, you know, I try, I started a small little ready-to-wear line because there are people who like my stuff. But then as what the pandemic is doing is that every tastes have changed. Clothing is no longer that priority today because where are you going to go? You cannot even go to a bar. Right. Or, or you can't even go to fine dining anymore and get dressed, you know, or all the red carpets are canceled. That's right. Everything's canceled. Everything is canceled. We're, we're, so where are you going to buy the $5,000? I mean, where are you going to wear the $5,000 dress? And that was... Uh, uh Something that you you do that regularly, right? Create yes. Yes. outfits for uh-huh. stars doing a red carpet. Yeah. Do you a- see them there in that particular table? And so, you know, um, I've worked a lot with most of them. I still do because some of the, even their own personal clothing. A lot of these celebrities, a lot of these stars, they don't go shopping. The shops go to them. Yeah, they can't really go out and go no, to a store. No, they can't. Have you ever seen a big star shopping over at freaking Ralph's grocery store? Right. No. No. No, they, they can't, you know. And so, um, you know, so a lot of them, especially the guy clients I have, when they order clothing, they just don't order one. Like Bill Shatner is my client, and, you know, he would order like a dozen shirts, you know, a dozen pants. You know, mm-hmm. It's like a whole wardrobe uh-huh. because, you know, guys are guys, you know. It's not like... You know, we always have to see what's go, going on in the windows. Right. And I want to have that. No, we already know. We all, right. Regardless, we all look the same. <laughs> yeah. When everybody, all the guys look the same in a suit, okay? Right. So, right. And, and that's what's expected of men. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't mm-hmm. see feathers and flowers right. and, and all that right. stuff. I mean, sometimes at the Grammys we do. But, <laughs> Probably. You know. Yeah, but, but, you know, regularly. Normal. Normally. Yeah, normally, no. Correct. So, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating because I think my career has given me an opportunity to meet different, different kinds of people, different kinds of people's incomes and, 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 and the, the thought process and the way they handle themselves. And sometimes I realize that the most famous people in the world or even the richest people in the world are actually the most simple people in the planet. Uh, isn't that nice to hear? It's true. That's really nice to hear. They, 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 they still long for freaking Kentucky Fried Chicken, even if they can afford to eat steak every night. Right. You know, they still want French fries from McDonald's. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so um, it's just that we always look up to these people like there's some people that are, you know, they only have to have the best and they always have to be, you know, eating the best of this and the best. No. They're still regular people like us. The wow. only difference is that they have titles. So what, um, tell us a little bit about you, your work with Chic Compass mm-hmm. Magazine. You're the creative director. Mm-hmm. What, what does that entail? Well, it entails on, like, for example, I handle most of the photography that happens in the magazine. You know, uh, it's, it's primarily the creative the art or the way the magazine is going to be presented, you know, like uh, this particular season that we're doing the digital issue is that I'm highlighting one of the best young photographers. I would say photographer slash artist who's based out of Los Angeles. And you're going to see his work, which is amazing. And I'm featuring him. And I always do it because the magazines, magazines are very visual, you know, it has to be a visual thing. Yeah. So I focus a lot on photographers 
And, you know, whether they shoot fashion or beauty, because mm-hmm. it's not all about fashion. You know, sometimes we also uh, focus on beauty, on women's makeup or colors of, their, of, of, of cosmetics and all that. So I, I don't know how things have changed in the publication industry, but ever since I was... You know, and when I'm in my younger years, you know, it, my magazines were a source of information. Right. You know, we look at the magazines and see, oh, look what he's wearing. Oh, I want to look like that. Or I like what he's wearing. You know, that's how we base it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's what I still do in a sense. But although I, I put more art to it, not just the commercialism of the the, the images that are being Printed in the yeah, magazine. you want to put your mm-hmm. your creativity, mm-hmm. your creative stamp, mm-hmm. and fingerprint to it, right? Exactly. And not only that, I also want to bring all these talented people in the magazine that nobody has probably heard of, or you know, I mean, I try to give them, you know, their platform or introduce them, or or because if nobody's going to give them a chance, right, then what? Well, and I think that is a wonderful um, skill and talent to be able to identify someone that you see big talent and potential in, but maybe for some reason other people aren't seeing that, mm-hmm. or they're not getting the opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Or the exposure. Or the exposure. And it's sad, mm-hmm. though. And so that's why when I established the Las Vegas Fashion Design Council, is that my slogans goes... It doesn't matter who you are or even what you have. What matters is how others have become because of you. That's beautiful. Tell us a little bit about the council and what you well, do with the council. Um, I started the council in two, well, actually, the idea came to me in 2008 because um, I was not a Vegas resident yet. At that time, I was still in California, and there was a big accident in the sense that my showroom in California was robbed. Oh my goodness! Yes, this was late. This was early, This was late 2007, early 2008. How did they get a lot of stuff? Uh, about half a million dollars worth. Oh. Because you have to remember in my, like what you see here in my showroom, you see the samples of clothing around you. There's a lot. Okay. So these samples of clothing are the things that my clients try on. Okay. Right? It's just like food. When you go to a bakery, you have to see the bread, the cake, the pie. It's not as if you wonder what they look like, right? Right. They already have samples right there. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Same thing with fashion. Okay. You know, they have to see your style. They have to see, they have to feel the fabric. You know, they have to try it on to see how it fits or the cut and all the shape, you know? So I have that. So inventory wise, they took it because some of my clothing starts at about $5,000 and up. Okay, but the sad part during that time, not only did they steal 15 years of my work. My goodness. Because those are all archives, all right? 15 years of my work. They also stole wedding dresses that were supposed to be picked up by brides because it's their wedding. And usually they order this a year ahead. So I, they, uh, there are, I think, seven new wedding dresses that were supposed to be picked up. Oh, my goodness. And what do I tell the bride? Sorry, can't have a wedding. Your dress was stolen. So my focus at that time of the theft was to recreate everything because it's not their fault. And they were already paid for. Oh, my goodness. And they weren't cheap. Wow. Okay. And so I had to recreate everything. So my focus right after that, th- that, that robbery in my showroom is call my designer friends in LA and all the other manufacturers that I know. Okay, guys, you know, I have to reproduce seven bridal dresses and you have to help me put it together, you know, because I don't have time anymore. And, you know, and so thankfully all those brides were so they, saved. They helped you. Yeah, they helped me. Because, you know, the one thing with the fashion industry is everybody supports one another. That's nice. That's wonderful. We do. You know, some probably would have the ego of competing with you Uh business-wise. Right. But when when it comes to technical, everybody supports each other. Nice. Nice. That's that's it. Did you ever get any of your things back? No. 
Wow. Well, the detectives and all these people that were investigating the case asked me to look at, you know, uh, online social media to see if any of my dresses are being, you know, sold online and stuff. But then I was told eventually, you know, a month after all the investigation is properly already crossed the border. Right. Mm. Right. Because what else you can't? Yeah. There's such one of a kind mm-hmm. pieces. And the thing that really hurt me most is that there's no such thing as you insure clothing. Insurance only pays for equipment. Okay. You know what I'm saying? And okay. Other stuff, but they don't. In, you don't insure clothes. Wow. So that's when I was so depressed that a friend of mine who was there at that moment that it was that it happened lives here in Vegas. And he's a flight attendant, and he says, I'm going to be out for 30 days. Here's the key to my apartment. Leave L.A., chill out, get out of here, you know, kind of like think what you're going to do, but just get out of L.A. So that's when I came to Vegas. Okay. And I've only, always been a tourist here. For me, Vegas is about the strip. Right. You know, I didn't even know Summerlin existed. Sure. There, I, but for me, Las sure. Vegas is the strip. That's right. And so when I came here, I was already here for almost a week. You know, we have common friends here. It was a Friday, I remember. And they said, David, are you driving back to L.A.? I said, no, I don't want to meet the traffic. So probably I drive on Monday back to L.A. And so I said, so why don't you come with us, you know? Uh, and I said, why? Where are you going? And they said, we're going to First Friday. And I said, oh, great. Is that a club? Is that a new club? I didn't know what was, the, you know, I didn't know anything about Vegas. Yep. And they said, no, it's an event downtown uh, Las Vegas where, you know, the, all these artists close all these major streets and they do exhibitions and, and art here and music there. And it's just fun. It's like a festival. And it's good for you to see local culture. And I said, oh, great. So sure. I went with them and that's how my life changed okay it's uh you know as i was looking at the talent that i was witnessing i remember there was a young girl standing on on in front of a light post because she needed the light to illuminate she had a tv tray table in front of her and as as i was passing by i was wondering what she was selling or what she was exhibiting and as i was as i got near i realized there were pieces of jewelry and when I looked at her jewelry, I was blown away. Mm. You know, with my New York background and my designer friends and how I know about fashion, when I looked at her work, it was like that level of quality that it could be Gucci. It could be one of those. And so this girl, I said, oh, I said, uh, are, are you a designer? And she was like embarrassed. Like, oh, no, no. She said, I'm not a designer. And I said, well, you must be some sort of somehow in fashion or are you a fashion student i said well and she he she goes well i'd love to go to fashion school but my parents can't afford to take me and so i said well i said i said well you know your jewelry looks different in a sense it was a juxtaposition of different forms and shapes of metal i've never seen before so it was like sculpture that she put together and so i she said to me um I, I said to her, rather, is that, you know, jewelry designers use a lot of rhinestones and beads and crystals. I said, what are your elements? What are these? And then she asked me a question, and I was surprised. And then she goes, do you drive a stick? Exactly my face, like how you <laughs> did it right there. And I said, no. I said, okay, fine. I was holding one of the pieces, and she took it from my hand, and she put it on. It was fantastic. And she said, okay, she said, and see, you see these little metal coils that go down on this side? I said, on the left side, I said, yes, it's a mechanism of a clutch. Wow. Exactly. And as she was telling me that they were individual car parts, one was a, from an engine piston of a 1967 Chevy and all that stuff. As, as she was explaining it to me, my head, in my head, I was saying, I'm looking at the future designer for Tiffany's. I'm looking at the future American designer for jewelry. I'm looking at the f- wow. future American designer for Van Cleef and Arpels. But at the same time, my mind was telling me, what's going to happen to this young girl? She just told me that her parents cannot afford to take her to fashion or art school. So how who would help her in her creative growth knowing that public schools they took art and music out of the curriculum yes you know that yes so i said how many young people are there in the city of las vegas that have this enormous 
talent. Yeah, you talk about creativity, right? Yes, creativity. Wow. And yet there's no support. There is no money. There's, it seems like they can't go anywhere with this God-given talent. So that your idea was born. Exactly. And so when she, when she said that her father works for a junkyard and that on her the weekends, her mother works for the casinos until the early morning. So her father doesn't want to leave her behind because she was only 14. Oh, she was just a kid. Wow. She was only 14 and she did this. And so, you know, that's why she stays with her dad until he closes the junkyard. And that's where she sees all this stuff. And so uh, the funny part was when I asked her, have you sold any of your work? And she said, no, I haven't really. And I said, are people showed interest at all? She says, well, you're the only one who really stood here for all this time talking to me. So she said, so I said, what time did you get here? She said, well, we start assembling everything at four. And it was almost eight o'clock that night when wow. I met her and I said well I said how much do you how much are you selling them and then she just goes how much do you want to buy it and so I told her well you literally told me they're junk <laughs> but that's not the value of your work I mm. said the value of your work is the time and the effort and the creative touch and how you put all these things together that created it but being a 14 year old I guess that kind of profoundness didn't really register right you know she just says oh whatever says how much do you want to buy it? oh this is just junk I threw yeah, together exactly not realizing that, 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 that there's something there right and so she said uh, I said, how many pieces do you have? She had seven samples. So I said, would you sell them to me for $50 each? And uh, at first, she did not realize that the word each. She immediately said, oh, you can have everything for $50. She's, so I said, no, I want this for $50. I want that for $50. I want that for $50. She looked at me like I was crazy. She looked at me like, are you like, am I hearing this right? <laughs> she was just, you can see from her face that she's sort of like confused. And, and, and then in a few seconds, she said to me, looking at straight to my face, she goes, for reals? She said, you're going to buy this at $50? I said, yeah, for reals. And then I said, is there an ATM machine around here? And she says, there's a mobile one just right around the corner. And I said, okay, I'll be back. And as I was walking, you know, I said, you know, um, uh, I said, there is some reason why I met this girl. Right. You know, I was not planning to come here. Right. I was about to leave for L.A., but I just wanted to stay for the weekend. And so I took, when, of course, you go to the ATM, it gives you $20 bills. And she had seven pieces at $50 at $350, right? So you have to get $360 out. Okay. Right. So I said, what's the 10 bucks? Give it to her. And so... That's a lot of cash. $360 worth of $20 bills is a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. So I had to fold it. As I was walking back towards her, I saw her from a distance. She didn't have anything really to wrap those items. And so she took one of those Vegas Weekly free magazine on the street, and she just tore the pages. And that's how she wrapped them. And she didn't even have scotch tape or anything like that. But she had that way of wrapping paper like origami. Mm where it locks whatever's inside. Wow. So you see that there is that creative thing. Wow. But the simplicity of it all, she didn't have anything to even wrap her She just, fi her brain exactly. just figured it out. And so as I came in, she says, you know, I apologize. I don't really have an, a bag or, or I said, oh, don't even think about it. She said, but I have a 99 cent store plastic bag. I said, that's fine. I said, so she put it there and I gave her the cash. So immediately she saw the cash, she, the bundle, and she put it immediately in her pocket. I said, honey, count the money. And she looks, she goes, oh, I'm sure it's okay. I said, no, you have to count the cash. And she said, I, I don't think you're going to change cheat me. I said, it's not that. I'm already teaching you how to become a businesswoman. So she started counting it. By the time she got to 100, 120, 160, she started to cry. It was, and I looked at her and I said, why are you crying? It was like sobbing. And I said, why are you crying? Um, I said, sorry, 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 That's sorry. Okay. Um, See, next time I have to turn all this off. <laughs> but that's part of the interview. Anyway, that's, right. that's the fun of it. There you you go. know, this is like a reality show, but that's it's right. more like a reality sound. That's right. Uh, so anyway, uh, so, and she started to cry. And I said, why are you crying? I said, you're supposed to be happy you sold all your work. She says, oh, I'm happy. But now I can buy crystals. Now I can buy beads. Oh, now wow. I can buy rhinestones. Wow. 
That's amazing. So, that's, so she won't depend on junk. Right. That's what she meant. And so I said to her, I said, you know what? It's almost 8.15. I said, I think, you know, and she's pretty. She has blonde hair and green eyes. And I said, 14-year-old uh, in downtown Las Vegas with $360 in your pocket, walking and roaming around doesn't look good. I said, you have no business here anymore. You sold everything. Now it's time to go home. I said, did you drive here? She says, no, I took the bus. I said, which part of town do you live? I don't really know. She goes, I live near Nellis, she said. I said, okay, so which bus do you take? She says, it just goes all the way down Charleston where we were at. I said, okay, is that, there's a bus coming. Is that your bus? She said, yeah, I can ride that. I said, do you need change if you need bus fare? And she says, no, I have a pass, she said. And then I said, okay, fine. And this is my card. I said, call me when you get home. Because I wanted to make sure she rides that bus. Right. Okay. Right. And I said, before that, I stopped her and I said, are you wearing socks, shoes, and sneakers? She said, yes. Divide the cash and put it on each side of your socks. Don't leave it in your pocket. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. And she was wondering why. And I just said, just do it. Just so he put it. Everything she did it. it. Yeah, she did it. And then she, before she rode the bus, I, I remember she looked up to me one last time and she said, why are you nice to me? And I answered her back and said, because one day you're going to be nice to someone else. There you go. And that's when she left. And I gave her my number. I told her, call me the moment you get out get home and so after that experience i was looking at all my other friends we were kind of like you know he's separated and all that and my, I, was, I was walking i was thinking into my head i said i'm not calvin klein and i don't even have calvin klein's bank account <laughs> right but you know i said to myself famous people know me yeah. I've worked with so many famous and, 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 and big stars. Maybe I can use that resource to help these kids. Yep. And so the following day, I called my lawyer in L.A. who was handling the corporate, the business. And I said, Kirk. And they said, where the hell were you? We were trying to call you. It's <laughs> almost a week. I said, I'm in Vegas. You didn't even tell us. There's so many papers you have to sign. The, the, this and the, you know, because of the theft and the robbery. Oh, you know, I oh, forgot right, all about right, it. Right. I forgot all about it. Right. And the only thing I mentioned was that, how do you start a nonprofit organization? Okay. And my lawyer says, what the hell is going on? And I said, well, I told him the story and says, okay, I'll see you when I get in. And so anyway, you know, we had to file it. You know, I had to do a 501c3, mm -hmm. file it through the IRS. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after about eight or almost a year, we got our certificate. Okay. So it's the Las Vegas Fashion Design Council, which is a nonprofit organization. And what it, it's the, what it does, it helps all these kids who cannot afford to go to fashion school or art school, help them in creative growth by giving them workshops and uh, educational programs so that in the event that they think that this is the career path they want to go through, they already have a knowledge of it. Great. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, you know, with, with, with the computers and the internet, you don't need to go to school anymore. There's a lot of DIY in Absolutely. the computers. So, you know, so what happens is the Las Vegas Fashion Design Council has actually helped them jumpstart. Great. You know, it, it, their, 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 their passion. And because it, I always believe that you, there are people who think, like you as an artist, you, there are people who think that you're just an artist here in your head. This can change. Your head can be influenced, discouraged. Yeah. But if you're an artist in your heart, yep. that's passion. That's right. Nobody can change it. Right. There you go. And I think what you're doing is helping to connect those things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because for a young person who maybe has a dream, mm -hmm. I want to be a designer. I want to be a songwriter. I want to be a whatever it might be in yeah. the creative art, mm -hmm. arts field. But they might not, they might have, we all have doubt, right? We all have those doubts in our heads. But you're helping give them, convince their brain that, oh, I can do this. Yes, exactly. Oh, I have talent. Uh -huh. I have skills. I have the passion, mm -hmm. right? Yes. I can do this. Yeah. So, well, the thing is, I allow them to discover that this is something that they've always wanted to do but couldn't express it because yeah. probably of the limitations in their environment. Right. 
you know. But then I give them the chance to express it, you know. And and why not? Yeah, why not? Exactly. Why not? And, why not? You know, our knowledge is not just for us. Mm-hmm. The things as my grandfather said that you know, being a creative person, you have a responsibility. Very true. You know, so. That's a that's a wonderful thought to end on, David. Thank you so much for oh, talking you're very with me. Welcome. Um, this has been a fascinating conversation, <laughs> and uh, we're gonna have to have you back because I, I think there's a lot more we could. Oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. All right, thank you for having me. Have a great day. Okay, thanks. You have been listening to the Chic Compass Connection podcast. To learn more about Chic Compass magazine, visit chiccompass.com. That's C-H-I-C-C-O-M-P-A-S-S dot com. Thanks again to The Vegas Room for hosting us. Visit thevegasroom.com to find out more about this great supper club. This is Jamie Hosmer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>